morning. Uh, we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, we're actually going to do verses 6 through 10. I was having so much fun preparing, it's going to take on a few more verses. <clears throat> so I'll give you a chance to get to 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's also printed out in your sermon outline. That's in the uh, brochure or the handout, the bulletin that we've provided. And uh, let's see, I'll, I'll read that now and then, and then we'll pray. <clears throat> now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage from 1 Timothy about the great gain of having you, Lord, and the peril of, of the misuse of financial resources, of money. We pray that you would illumine this text, Lord, that you would affirm all that was true and uh, remove anything that is false. And we ask your blessing on this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's a modern-day poet out there that you don't know that's been inspired by this verse, and he sort of has a different take on it. And his take is, Money, so they say, is the root of all evil today. Right? Sounds very scriptural, right? Sounds very good. Um, it's actually Pink Floyd. I guess <laughs> Pink Floyd loves scripture, and, and really, when they thought about this song about money, they wanted to... Dig into God's word, I'm sure. Uh, maybe not, but they knew at least a, enough about the Bible to sort of grab onto this verse and try to put it into their song and make something out of it. Uh, and, and of course, we can laugh about Pink Floyd, and we quite, might question their ability to handle Scripture accurately and, and, and correctly. Um, but they're tapping into something that our culture recognizes, um, that money can be dangerous. Um, if we just think about the political scandal called Watergate. Now, some of you, Watergate is like, of course, I know what Watergate is. Some of you are younger, and it's like, oh, I think I studied that in history class or something like that. But when they were investigating Watergate, the person that was sort of sharing them inside information said, you know what you need to do? You need to follow the money. Follow the money and you'll find the source of all the evil and corruption in Watergate. And that's what they did. And it ended up with a president having to leave the presidency. In more modern terms, you might think of Occupy Wall Street. That's why all these people are gathering and they're protesting. And, and why are they going to Wall Street instead of any other street? Why don't they go to the White House or something like that? Well, Wall Street is where the money is. And so if you occupy Wall Street, you, you somehow you'll influence the money and you'll influence uh, society in a positive way. So even in society, we, we see this realization that somehow you know, money is something that we gotta get hold of, that it can be a source of evil. 
And of course, uh, Christians know the scripture and uh, they might even use the shorthand that, that, that Pink Floyd used, that money is the root of all evil. And just sort of, they, they don't remember exactly what the verse says. Christians throughout history have had sort of a, a love-hate relationship with money. Some might say mostly love, but, but yet there have been movements within Christianity that challenge Christians to live radically simple lives. If you think about the Middle Ages, you know, you've got monastic vows of poverty. Prominent wealthy men near the end of their life would give away all to the church and retire to a monastery to sing praise to God and study the Holy Scripture. Uh, today, I remember growing up, there was the mustard seed conspiracy and, and other related groups like them would do creative things like they would make furniture out of milk crates and two by fours and they were gonna live a radically simple life and every you know, ounce of money they could find and squeeze out they would give to expand the kingdom of God. They, they realized that money could distract them from following God and so they were just really radical. Um, in other ways, uh, Christianity uh, has sort of, sort of embraced money. In some ways, that can be healthy. When we look at the Protestant work ethic, uh, it sort of started to attack this artificial division between sort of the sacred world where you follow God and things are holy and then the sort of the corrupt, average, everyday world where we live our lives and uh, we make things and we sell things and we put food on the table and things like that. But we also have, of course, the abuses. We think of the televangelists. You know, they're driving the fancy cars and they're building crystal cathedrals and they're out of control. You know, these crazy people, you know, they're, they're an embarrassment to Christianity. But of course, every time you point that finger, you know, there's three fingers pointing at you. You know, what would happen if somebody looked at my checkbook and said, you know, based on your checkbook, I established the priorities of X, Y, Z. Would we be comfortable with the answer? And even as we go through, we, we struggle with difficult questions like, is this house too nice for us? Is this car too nice for us? Is that really what an authentic Christian would own? We struggle, we agonize. And sometimes we're very confused. You know, is, is money evil or is it not evil? Do I run away from it? Do I embrace it? Do I try to use it to serve God? Or is it just too corrupting? And uh, a lot of ways we're like the character Robbie Hart from The Wedding Singer. Some of you might know this movie, some of you don't. But uh, Robbie's not in love with money. He's not serving the almighty dollar. He just loves playing rock and roll, and he's got this great girlfriend. But early in the movie, there's a crisis. His girlfriend leaves him at the altar. Leaves him at the altar because basically he lives in his sister's basement and he's just got all these small-time jobs playing bar mitzvahs and weddings, and it ain't good enough for her. And so he loses his girl. And then he meets an even better girl. He's even more wonderful, and he's excited, but he's, gonna, he's worried about losing her too because she's got this rich boyfriend who makes lots and lots of money, and he's going to give her financial security. He's going to give her the house in the suburb and the 2.5 kids and the, you know, whatever cars they need. Um, and so he's... He's desperate, he's desperate. And so he goes out, he says, I'm gonna look for a job that's gonna make me some money so I can win this girl. And he says, well, where's the money? Well, I'm gonna to go to the bank. That's what I'm gonna do. And so this bank, you know, officer comes in and Robbie Hart uh, sits across from him and he says, well, Robbie, you know, uh, what kind of experience do you bring to this job? And Robbie's answer is, well, sir, uh, I use money, I like it. I have a little bit. 
I keep it in a jar above my refrigerator. Uh, I'd like to put more into that jar, and that's where you come in. Of course, he didn't do very well with that job interview. And when we laugh about it, and I think it's good to laugh sometimes, we get very serious when we talk about money, but isn't that how we kind of approach God? You know, we're, we're not wrapped up into money. We just want God to put a little money in that jar so we can have a little fun now and then, you know. But no, 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 we're not, you know, we're not controlled by money. We're not wrapped up too much. We're cool about it. We're cool about it. Um, money's a real dilemma. And sometimes this verse has been a real problem. I mean, even Pink Floyd, you know, poor Pink Floyd. We're going to beat up on them. But they sort of mess up this verse, but part of the problem is the King James Version, because the King James Version does say that uh, the love of money is the root of all evil. And you say, what? You know, that, you know, well, that's what the King James Version says. Now, kind of pop culture has helped us out and sort of got rid of that love of money part, and pop culture just sort of shortened it down. Uh, money is a root of all evil. And so, you know, really, Pink Floyd's not that far off. But there's a, f a few key misunderstandings uh, that are introduced by uh, the King James Version and the pop culture version of it. Of course, the pop culture version is easy to correct that. Uh, it's not just money itself that's the problem. It's the love of money, right? Money itself is an inanimate object or it's a theoretical concept. Basically, money is just authority over resources. I give you money, you give me stuff. You ain't got no money, you don't get no stuff. I mean, it's a pretty simple concept. But, but, the, but Paul, what Paul is talking about in this verse is not just money itself. He's talking about the love of money. It's the love of money that's the problem. Uh, the other problem with the, with the King James Version, sort of the pop culture, is that money's not the root of all evil. Not that there's other, you know, there aren't any other sources of evil out there. I mean, we can think of pride and lust and idolatry and, and all, you know, anger and vengeance and all sorts of things that are roots of evil. Uh, so money's not the one and only root of all evil. It's just one root. It's, and if you look at the Greek text, which we're not going to spend a lot of time doing that, there's no the root. It's just a root. That's a better translation. And then the second error is, it's not all evil. It's, the better translation is it's all kinds of evils. So we have some trouble with his expression, uh, money is the root of all evil. You know, it's not money itself. It's a love of money. It's not the root of all evil. It's a root. It's one of a possible sort roots of evil. And it's not all evil. It's all kinds of evils. It's uh, all sorts of mischief can come out of the love of money. And so we have those um, errors that we need to kind of correct before we go too much farther. Um, and the other thing is, okay, so we've corrected some of the misconceptions about this phrase, money is the root of all evil. We sort of have a more biblical understanding, a little bit better grounded. Um, but we don't want to explain away this passage either. We want to understand it. And to do that, I've already incorporated a couple more verses in, and we're going to just touch briefly on some of the surrounding concept, uh, uh, context to help us understand this verse 10. Now, verse 10 is actually part of a larger paragraph. Uh, most of your Bibles have it starting about halfway through verse 2 and running through the end of 10. Uh, some of you do split it into two parts where it's 2 through 5 and then 6 through 10, 
But in either, way, in either situation, verse 6 sort of acts like a critical hinge on understanding this whole passage. So verse 10 gets the limelight. It gets the headlines. It gets to be included in the Pink Floyd songs and other places. Uh, but it's really verse 6 that helps us explain what Paul is really trying to say uh, in these verses. And essentially, his message is that true godliness is great gain. True godliness is great gain. Now, uh, we're going to see this more fully as we look through the verses. Uh, you'll notice at the beginning of 2, it says, teach and urge these things. This is something that Paul repeats throughout 1 Timothy chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 4. You know, teach or urge, teach or urge these things. He's giving instructions to the church about how to do things, how to order things, how to solve problems. And when we get to 6, uh, there's a particular problem. And we see it, it's this problem with false teachers. And they've, they've got some stuff that's going to mess up the church. It's going to cause some real damage. And we kind of see that damage in verse 5, but it's sort of a little bit cryptic. We need to read some more verses to understand it. But in verse 5, it says that, there's a, that they cause constant friction among people who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So they've got this slogan, godliness is a means of gain. Now, it sounds good, right? I mean, godliness should be gain if we look at the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, places like Psalm 1, or even in John 10, where Christ talks about the abundant life. As we embrace Christ, as we are conformed to his image, good stuff's gonna happen. So, so what's really wrong with this slogan that these false teachers have? Like, godliness is gain. Well, the problem is, is that when they use the term gain, it means something a little specific. What it really means is financial gain, material gain. If you follow God, you're going to get stuff. It's a little bit like the health and wealth gospel that we see today. Uh, it probably had its own unique first century twist. But the, basically is that it's a transactional view of God. You know, you serve God, you give him his due, and God's going to give you stuff. And Paul sees that as an incredible danger to the church, and he tackles it head on in verse 6. As I said, verse 6 is sort of the hinge on which these verses turn. And, and he says, he sort of almost kind of affirms that. He says, well, there's, there's great gain in godliness. There's great gain in godliness. But he adds this phrase, with contentment. See, true godliness gives you contentment, but the godliness that was being peddled, so to speak, by the false teachers was, a, was really something about financial gain that was playing upon their greed, that was praying, praying upon their desire to have more and more stuff. And Paul really needed to tackle this. And so, um, so he sort of does kind of a biblical jujitsu on them. He sort of takes their phrase, great gain, but he sort of flips it on them. He says, hey, you've got this thing called godliness is gain. That, that's really chump change. That's really a small-time deal. If you really want great gain, if you want to do great, if you want the deal of a lifetime, what you need to do is embrace this godliness with contentment because that's where the action is. 
That's what's going, that's where it's going on. That's what's happening. So he's sort of playing upon the greed of these followers. Is like, listen, you think you're getting the best deal from those people? No, 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 no. The best deal is over here. Godliness with contentment. And so he sort of uses that, that, that greed and that desire on these followers' part to, to sort of shift them, to sort of change their heart and try to, try to pull on those heartstrings and get them going in the right direction. Um, it's, it's sort of a strange concept, right? You know, well, greed's a bad thing. You shouldn't tell them get, to, get, to give up their greed, right? Abandon their greed. But Paul says, no, no, no. It's, it, we're, we all should be looking for a deal, right? You're looking for the wrong deal. The wrong deal is over here where there's godliness with contentment. Um, now, in the rest of the verses, we're going to see some problems. And he's going to spend a lot of time, uh, Paul's going to spend a lot of time talking about the problems with this false godliness. And so we can so, sort of infer the true godliness as, as we go through and, and uh, sort of dissect what the, bad, uh, the false godliness looks like. But there's sort of three maladies that, that afflict this false godliness that's being peddled by these false teachers. And these, these three maladies are discontent, a rush to riches, and a craving for cash. So I've got my alliteration down, and it's mostly to help me memorize as much as anything. But discontent, a rush to riches, and a craving for cash. So the first malady that he takes on is discontent. And we see in, uh, in the verses 7 and 8 that true godliness is great gain, but discontent deludes us and denies us true godliness. Let's read se verse 7 again. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. So there you go, boom, there's this giant hole in the middle of the false teacher's teaching. It's like, listen, you're trying to sell these guys stuff, it's not going to last. Listen, you can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. You came into this world naked and you're going to go out with nothing. Now, of course, you know, people try to take stuff with them, uh, but they really can. One, one uh, pastor who had officiated a funeral was asked, well, you know, uh, how much did this man leave behind? The pastor looked at him and sort of raised an eyebrow, and he said, well, he left behind everything, you know? He left behind everything. You can't take it with him. And yet humans try all these sort of things. You've got pharaohs and their pyramids full of treasure, you know, Norse kings filling their ships full of their booty from the, you know, the villages that they pillaged and robbed from. Um, and, you know, modern people are a little bit more sophisticated, but I remember growing up, and there was this bumper sticker. It was popular in the mid-'80s or whatever. Um, he who dies with the most toys wins. It's like, hey, he who dies with the most toys is still dead. You're dead. You don't have any toys. They're gone. It's like, I mean, maybe as you're just your last line breath, you might, forget it. You can't take it with you. Uh, and so Paul is sort of pointing out this giant hole in the teaching, uh, this false teaching about godliness and saying, listen, you, you can't take it with it, take it with you. And, he, and, he, and then he provides a counter argument. And we see that in verse 8. Um, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. It's a very simple statement. Listen, in this life, what do you need? You need some food, you need some clothing. Well, somebody said, well, what about shelter? 
Well, I, I don't know. I guess shelter, really, if, if you're really living the pilgrim life, you might have a form of shelter, but it's the form that you put up and you take down. And the Christian life is really a pilgrim life. We realize the brevity of our time here. We realize that we didn't bring anything in and we can't take anything out. It's sort of telling uh, King David, of course, who had incredible wealth, um, he was denied the opportunity to build the temple. But he figured, I'm going to do everything all the way up to building the temple. And then, of course, you know, I, I give. I'm not going to cross God. I'm, I'm not going to disobey. But I'm going to do everything up to getting ready for the temple. And, and they so they have this giant ceremony. They assemble all the materials. And uh, David prays a prayer. And in this prayer, it's in uh, 1 Chronicles 29, 15, he confesses, he confesses that we are just pilgrims on this earth, that our, that our time here is just a breath. He might have had lots of wealth, but he held it lightly. He held it lightly. And the problem, we've talked about the delusion of, the, of this discontent, but also what it does is it denies us true godliness. You know, in, in Isaiah 55, the prophet cries out, you know, why do you buy uh, bread that, you know, why do you seek bread that won't feed you? You know, why do you hunger out of stuff that's not going to fill your needs? And, and that's what happens when you have this false sense of godliness. You're, you're trying to accumulate all this stuff that you're never going to be able to hold on to. And there's this uh, Christian saying, I kind of modified it a little bit, but the, the phrase essentially is, it only makes sense to give up what you cannot keep, to gain what you cannot lose. It only makes sense to give up what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. And Christians realize that the material possessions that they're given for this brief time on this earth, they're meant to, you know, basic needs, food and clothing, but also to bless those around them um, and to advance the kingdom of God on this, on this earth. So we've seen that uh, discontent can sort of delude and deny us true righteousness. Paul then turns to Another problem with this false godliness, which is that a rush to riches can lead to ruin. Uh, the rush to riches uh, can ruin true godliness. True godliness is great gain, but it can be all wrecked by this pursuit of riches. And we see this in verse 9. We see this in verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So in this verse, you can almost see a reenactment of this person's life, right? You see, first they sort of start to get tempted, then they sort of start to go for the bait, then they're snared, then they're caught, and then sort of the, the, the tentacles of the desire to be rich are wrapped around them, and then they're plunging, they're plunging into ruin and destruction. So he's painting... Uh, this picture of what happens to those who have a rush to riches, who set their hearts on being rich. And um, Christians, uh, well, one of, one of the things uh, that I was, found it interesting to read was what is happening to these people that desire to be rich? And, and we looked, I looked at one particular group of people, and Ray Steadman kind of looked at some of the statistics about lottery winners, a lot, now, these are the people that win the lottery, not the people that play the lottery. 
Some of us regard lottery as a tax upon people that don't understand probability, but, but nonetheless, you know, it's a chance to become rich. You know, that's sort of a snobby engineer's view of things. But, but a lot of people play it. A lot of Christians probably play it. Well, what happens to these people? Well, I was sort of taken aback by the statistics. It turns out that, that 70% of the people that win the lottery within a few years, and he didn't give the number, but I'm guessing two to five years, I'm just guessing that, they've lost everything. They've lost everything that they won in the lottery in a few short years. It's like, wow. And some of them, and along the way, they've not only lost the money, but they've, a lot of them have destroyed the relationships in their lives, and a lot of them have been brought to death's door itself. Uh, either people trying to kill them for their money or them sort of, you know, despairing of life as they've lost everything. Um, and of course, it's, it's, you know, maybe easy or fun to pick on lottery winners, but there's a lot of different ways to, to pursue riches. You just think about the term of financial security. Well, financial security is good, right? You're just trying to be prudent, plan ahead, you know, make sure, you know, you have a reasonable anticipation of the things that might happen in your life. But, but where do you draw the line between financial security and then basically hoarding tons of money? Like I, I was, I'm not really that close to retirement, but I know some people that do. They talk about the 4% rule. 4% rule is basically uh, you have this big pile of money and use 4% of it to, you know, have your yearly retirement income. Well, you know, if you take a salary of Loudoun County, 100000 you got to have a stack of money like $2.5 million high to pay for this financial security. Is that the best use? I don't really know. But we, we, we're challenged, right? We're challenged about where do we draw the line? Uh, you know, we think that we're protected from the rush to riches, but we need to examine ourselves. Um, we need to, need to be careful. And of course, a lot of Christians, I think, are caught, and, and I think there's a lot of wisdom to this, there's sort of, it's something like the fight or flight syndrome. You know, that's where you're in, a, you're in a crisis situation. You either fight your way out of it or you run away. And you might call a Christian's reaction sort of the, the rain or run syndrome. When we're faced with riches, we either rain or we run. Um, now, running sometimes makes a lot of sense. When Jesus met the rich young man in Matthew 19, he looked at him and, you know, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, you know, I... I kind of got this law-keeping thing down. I'm, I'm doing pretty good, you know. You got anything else for me, Jesus? Yeah, I'm, you know, I think I can handle it. Oh, Jesus looks at him and says, well, yeah, I know what you need, buddy. You need to give away everything you have and come follow me. Because he knew, he wasn't trying to be mean to the rich young man. He understood his heart. He understood that for him to follow Jesus meant he was going to have to give it all away. And a lot of people through church history have sort of read this and agonized over, you know, whether they were the rich young man themselves. And so, as I said, in the Middle Ages, you'd have wealthy people near the end of their life. They'd give it all away to the church and they would retire to a monastery to live, you know, quiet lives of contemplation until um, they passed away. Um, and sometimes running is what we need. Sometimes when you face a temptation and you can't handle it, and so you just need to run. It's not a bad thing. It's sometimes what God calls us to do. Other times, God calls us to reign. That seems to be the, the purpose of that peculiar parable in Luke 16 about the dishonest steward. Sort of like, well, why does you know, Jesus use a dishonored steward to 
explain the kingdom of God. Well, the dishonest steward knows that he has this money for just a short period of time because basically he's going to face an audit and he's going to be in a world of trouble because he's been doing some sly stuff. But he knows that while he still has the authority, he can lay out a nice future of himself by making lots of friends and cutting lots of good deals with all the people that he's connected to while he's still the chief steward of the guy's house. Um, and it's sort of a peculiar parable, but the, but the meaning is essentially this. You know, Jesus commends this corrupt steward because he knows he can't hold on to the stuff and he needs to plan for his future. And that's what it means to be a Christian living out their lives and figuring out what to do with these material possessions. We need to realize that we got the stuff for a short period of time. What we really need to do is to, to lay our foundation for our future, our eternal future with Christ. Um, we, we can also look at the, the life of somebody like Job. Now, Job was a wealthy man, a very wealthy man. Chapter one of Job says that he was the greatest of the people of the East. People of the East meaning, I don't know, maybe near Yemen or Saudi Arabia of today. But it was, uh, he had tons of flocks, all sorts of material wealth. Uh, but in the process of suffering, he loses it all. And, and I found it very touching. I don't know if it's a life verse, but it's always uh, a set of verses that are very, touched me very much. Uh, and I'm, I'm just going to read part of it in 29, uh, Job 29, 11 through 17. But Job is reflecting upon the time when he had financial resources. He had clout. He had authority over resources. He had a chance to make a difference in the world around him. And let's hear about what he talks about. So starting in verse 11, when the ear heard, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw, it approved. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. And I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. So when, when Job reflects on the time when he had money, when he had financial resources, when he had incredible wealth, it wasn't the, the sound, oh, I missed the sound of the clink of the coin as it dropped into the treasury or the, the, the feeling of sable collars around my fine robe or this vast business enterprise with huge numbers of flocks. He says, I missed the chance I had to bless those around me, to bless my community, to show God's love and mercy through a godly use of my wealth. And so there we have it. We have uh, not just one application. We have God's call to different people in different times to do different things with their wealth. Sometimes they need to run from it. Sometimes they need to reign over it to serve God, to advance the kingdom, and to bless those around them. So we've looked at the rush to riches and how it ruins true godliness. Um, and what we see next is verse 10 is that true godliness is great gain, but the craving for, cra for cash crushes true righteousness. 
<clears throat> now, verse 10, we've, we've sort of spent a lot of time looking at the first part. And it's sort of connected with 10 because there's the word four in, at the beginning of verse 10. Whenever you see a four, you say, what's the four there for? Uh, you know, it's a purpose. It's a linking clause. And so these two verses are tied together. And the only thing I'd add about the first part of verse 10 is that um, this desire to be rich is one of the many evils that's caused by this love of money. Uh, but we spent a lot of time in the first part, so let's look at the second part of verse 10. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So there's two sorts of perils there. One of the perils is that some will wander away. And that's sort of a, a curious description, right? They just wandered away, you know. They were following God. They, they were trying to love him. They were trying to serve him. They just sort of wandered away. Just sort of wandered away. And that's the seduct seductiveness of riches, right? If you look at the book of Daniel and the captives and how they struggled with all the challenges of, of being faithful to God in, in the midst of this terrible captivity, they were faced with a number of challenges. Some of them were oppression. They were threatened with being tossed into the furnace. They were threatened with being put into the lion's den. But some of them were seduct seduct uh, seduction. For instance, they were told to eat the king's food. Well, it seems innocent enough, right? It's probably good food, you know? He's not gonna, he's trying to develop this new class of civil servants from some of the best of these servants, so why not give them this fine food? Problem was, this food was in violation, eating this food was in violation of God's law. And we might say, well, that was the dietary laws. Now, we're not very, feel very strongly about that. But to them, to eat the king's food was a violation of God's law. And you just wonder if they had given in to that seduction, if they agreed to eat the king's food, whether they might have just wandered away. Um, a lot of people look at Christianity in America and they're afraid of this giant persecution or something because some movie or some movement or something doesn't like Christians. Uh, a lot of times they don't like Christians for very Christian reasons. Christians oftentimes don't act like Christians should. But, but nonetheless, we're, we kind of get a sense of, you know, maybe is there persecution coming? You know, it seemed like society used to affirm biblical values. Now they, they question them. Um, I think it's more likely, though, that Christians will just wander away, that all the wealth, all the success, all the opportunity we have are gonna pull our hearts in a different direction and we'll just wander away. Well, the other peril is that through this craving for cash, this love of money, that we'll be pierced with many pangs. Now, the word there is used for sort of uh, some wild animal being, you know, thrown through with a spear or put on a spit of wood for cooking or something like that. And basically, uh, they're in bad shape. Uh, it, it almost, when I first read this, made me think of the crucifixion, but the crucifixion is using a different word here. But it's sort of a mockery of crucifixion. Instead of suffering for righteousness, of, instead of suffering to serve those around you, advance the kingdom of God, you're just suffering because the foolishness of following following your love of money to disastrous ends. And so those are the, the two perils uh, that come with this, with this craving. This love of money is also sort of a craving, you can call it a craving for cash. So 
we've seen uh, some of the dangers that are out there. And we've seen some of the different routes in scripture that people have taken to handle this challenge of money. Um, so what are we supposed to do with this verse? How, how are we supposed to take it home? How are we supposed to take it the way Paul meant it in his time and apply it to our day? Well, I think there are some specific applications that are very helpful to us. There are some dangers out there that we can avoid and we should certainly try to avoid them. Avoiding bad decisions can be very good for your life. But I, but I would also urge us to not miss the heart message that Paul uh, is bringing here. In these verses, Paul is painting a, a very vivid emotional image. Think about the words that he's using. He's using words uh, like gain, this sort of this greed for things. He's using uh, cravings and desires and passions and pangs. It's, it's a very turbulent passage emotionally. And through all this turbulence of emotion, Paul is trying to tell us about this main message, right? True godliness is great gain. True godliness is great gain. He could have said, you need to free yourself of all desires. You need to be like a Christian Spock or a Christian Data and just get rid of all desires. And there are some religious disciplines where that's the key. You get rid of all desires. Paul could have done that, but he knows the human heart. He knows that the human heart is always looking around for something to be passionate about, something to worship, something to follow, something to grab onto. And so he takes the greed of these followers. He takes their greed for financial gain and he uses that to make a point that that greed is touching on a heart need. There is a heart need that is that is being evidenced by this greed, all right? But he's saying that this greed for financial gain will never satisfy you. What you really need to have is a greed for God. And that sounds weird, right? A greed for God, you know, we're supposed to get rid of greed, right? Paul is trying to understand the human heart. He's trying to talk to people where they're at. He knows they're passionate. He knows that if they're just left empty, that some other message is gonna come and fill their lives. And that he, as he tells them to abandon their greed for material things, that it needs to be replaced with a positive presence of a passion for Christ, for his glory, and for all the riches that come from embracing true godliness and the message of the gospel. Um, several years ago, there was this song by the group Queen, and, uh, you know, you can imagine. But uh, the, basically the refrain, I don't know if it's the title, but the refrain is, I want it all, I want it all, I want it all, and I want it now. Now, what they want, you know, is probably a big mess. And, and we don't need to gain on it. But in a sense, Christians do want it all. And we do want it now. I was thinking of... of uh, Romans chapter eight there, and there's a lot of groaning going on in that, in that passage, that we're groaning awaiting our redemption. The Holy Spirit is groaning. Creation itself is groaning. We're groaning, we're awaiting the fullness of the redemption of Christ, for Christ to come again and make everything new, to create a new heavens and a new earth 
where death and dying and tears are gone and they're replaced by the glorious presence of Christ. Christians do want it all and we do want it now. There's this prayer, Lord, come quickly, Maranatha. We desire it. We have great desires. The question is, will we take the desires of our heart and point them towards things that won't last, that we can't take with us, or will we invest them in eternal things, things that will advance the kingdom of God and bless those around us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it feels awkward to have a greed for God, Lord, but we know that we need to have a holy passion for you, Lord, because we can't just eliminate the negative desires in our heart. We need to have the positive presence of a love for Christ, for a cherishing of the gospel, for a love for the people around us. We need to have all those things to have a healthy life, to enjoy, to enjoy the true godliness that you have mapped out for us, Lord. And we thank you that we have that promise of Christ, that promise of great gain, of that glorious day when all things would be made new and we can have unblemished access to your love and to your presence. And we pray this week that you would use this scripture to bless our hearts and to recapture that passion for you, that passion for true godliness and help it to make other things just fade in insignificance because of the all-surpassing wonder of Jesus. And we ask it in his name, amen.